Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Cara Hoffman talks about her novel, Be Safe, I Love You. Cara Hoffman is the author of the critically acclaimed 2011 novel, So Much Pretty. She grew up in northern Appalachia, where she dropped out of high school to work full-time. Hoffman spent three years travelling and working as an agricultural labourer in Europe and the Middle East. She returned to the US, had a baby and found a job delivering newspapers, which eventually led to work as a reporter covering environmental politics and crime. She has been a visiting writer at St John's, Columbia and Oxford, where she lectured on violence and masculinity for the Rhodes Global Scholars Symposium. Cara lives in Manhattan and teaches writing and literature at Bronx Community College, and her latest novel, which we're going to be talking about now, is Be Safe, I Love You. So, Cara, first of all, welcome to Little Atoms. Well, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And I should say um, Happy Independence Day because we're, we're talking on the 4th of July. And actually, I think uh, as we talk about the book and the subject matter of it, that might be a, that might be a little ironic, perhaps. <laughs> it is a little ironic. First of all, tell us about the book in your words. What's it about? So Be Safe, I Love You is the story of Lauren Clay, who's a soldier returning from Iraq. She's been the primary breadwinner for her family since she was young, kind of given up a lot of her youth and her dreams in order to support uh, a father who has some troubles and a little brother who she really loves. Um, She comes back home and things are not the way they were when she left them and she has some trouble adjusting and decides that one of the things that she should do is basically kidnap her younger brother and take him on this long trek into the Canadian Arctic wilderness in order to try to teach him to be more of a man. So let's Talk about the characters a little bit more then. So you've mentioned Lauren, Danny, who is her little brother, and Jack, who is her father. Where are they? What's the world that they inhabit? Where do they live? Yeah, so the Clay family lives in Watertown, New York, which is a kind of post-industrial town, almost rural, almost industrial and it's a town that has a military base. It's a, it's a military town. That's where she's grown up. So she's always been surrounded by this idea of the military as an option. And the family, it's an interesting family. The, the mother left when Lauren was young, and she took over a lot of the caretaking. So picking her brother up from school and taking care of him as her father sunk into a 
very deep depression. The whole setting of the book actually is, it's in upstate New York. It's a place that I write about a lot because I grew up there. Uh, and I also find it very, I find it a very interesting setting. So let's talk a bit more closely about why Lauren decides to join the military. Ah, yes, of course. So her after her parents' divorce and her father falls into this depression, he's not able to work anymore. And so the family, it's interesting, the family is very much the new American working poor, very, very indicative of the new American working poor, where if one little thing goes wrong, kind of everything goes wrong. So a divorce, a high medical payment, things like that can really sink a family that's on the fringes uh, very quickly. And that's, in fact, what happens to Lauren's family. Her, her parents split up. Her father is unable to work. He has some medical problems. And the house is going to be foreclosed on. And Lauren, who's a musician, a classically trained musician, decides instead of going to uh, going off to conservatory, she's going to join the army. She's going to get this huge signing bonus for joining the army, and she's going to pay the mortgage, and she's going to be the hero of her family. And part of the reason she, um, part of the other reason, this seems like something that makes sense is that her godfather is a Vietnam vet. Her whole world is in many ways populated by people who are either currently in the army, as people that she sees in the town, or, or family members who've been in the army. And it's in deep contrast to her father, actually, who is kind of this old, hippie, social justice sort of guy. So there's an ideological rift in the family, and there's, there's also a financial strain on the family. There are many different factors that cause this crucible, that cause this pressure to weigh on Lauren and, and influence her decisions. And it's interesting as well that, I mean, you've not gone down the obvious route of her having, she has other choices. She, as you said, she's talented. The family are not, although they're, you know, they're suffering because, as you said, the various issues that are piling up. They're ostensibly a sort of lower middle class family. There's lots of books around the house. You know, I mean, it's not like Lauren has no other choice but to go into the military. Exactly. She clearly has a choice and she makes what I think a lot of people would think is the wrong one. And that's Part of what I really wanted to examine is that there is this huge influence, especially when people are in in a situation that could go either way. Recruiting, you know, soldier recruiting in high schools, things like this, it, it's it's very it's very much a part of the culture here, and it's especially a huge you know it's a huge part of the culture for working class, lower middle class people. So tell us about the relationship between Lauren and Danny, her younger brother. Then, so Lauren and Danny have a, a really lovely relationship. He's been writing to her the, the entire time that she's in Iraq, sending these things that he calls his dispatches, where he is pretending that he is away at war and that she is on vacation. And he he tells her, well, in the first letter, he tells her in a very funny way about how their dog died. And, it, and from there, you see how their relationship has a little bit of this dark humor to it, but it's also very, very tight bond and very, very loving. And in many ways, the siblings save each other. Her love for him and the sacrifices she's made for him have really buoyed her and given her life meaning and, and kept her going, given her a sense of who she is as she's grown older. And he, of course, is a, is a kid who has a, a father who's clinically depressed and can't get out of bed and a mother who is gone. So he obviously needs he needs her in, in all these different ways. And the two of them form this very creative, kind of mutually protective world. And later, when she comes home, it takes everybody a while to figure out that she's falling apart. But Danny, who's so used to trusting her and seeing her as 
kind of heroic terms as someone who's able to do all kinds of things. Agrees to go with her. She tells him they're going to go visit their mother, and then she drives in, in a totally different direction and goes off into the Arctic woodlands. And he, because of their past relationship, trusts her. And then it's it's sort of down to Danny to deal with what happens next, which is really you know a psychotic break that his sister has way out in the middle of nowhere where they have no contact with anyone and no way to reach anyone. And I don't really want to go into into much more detail about what actually happens there. You've just right. sort of outlined where the where the story is going. But ostensibly, Lauren, she decides to toughen Danny up, doesn't she? Why does she want to do that? Well, she comes home and he is decide. You know, she comes home to a kid who is spending all of his time online and who used to do things like that were more physical. And part of that, obviously, is that when she left, he was younger. And when she returns, he's more of a teenager and he really just wants to chat with his friends and do the things that teenagers do. And so she sees him as somebody who's become very wimpy. And part you know, part of that is also because she's been in the military and she's been training. She has been living this extremely physical life. And toughening him up is something that she sees as essential as, as a part of the military culture that she's from. But also there is something that happens in Iraq that is directly linked to her desire to see him become self-sufficient and, and tough. I can't really see what, what it is that happens, but it, it's, yeah, it's directly linked to her, her feelings about how her, how her brother behaves and how she needs to assure that he can do things like run and, and, you know, drive a car, things that, you know, extreme sort of physical things that no one, <laughs> no one in their right mind would, would want a 13-year-old to really be doing. They go to Canada. So what is it about, I mean, you paint both Iraq, the, the scenes in Iraq in the desert, but also the northern wildernesses of Canada incredibly vividly and beautifully. But what is it about the north that she's obsessed by? Well, there's a, a few different things. I should say part of the narrative also has to do with her, the music that she's studying, which is holy minimalist music by Arvo Pärt, this Estonian composer. And this landscape, this extremely Arctic, stark landscape, is actually part of, um, it's visually a part of the sounds that she's been listening to and studying for a very long time. She links the two of them in her mind. So part of it is that, is, is, is a visual landscape that feels right to her as far as the aural landscape that she's been embodying for a long time. The other part of it is that she's been, uh, she's been in Iraq. She's been on convoys. She's been driving. She's been doing things that have caused her, of course, all these issues. And she wants to get very far away from everyone. She wants to get away from roads. She wants to get away from people. She wants to be alone, you know, alone with her brother, but alone. And she can't live, when she first comes home, she can't live normally anymore. And so doing things that are a physical challenge makes sense to her. And <laughs> I guess further, there really is a lot about that landscape. She's heading to a place called Hebron, uh, which is a, a place in which there, the Jean d'Arc Basin, the Joan of Arc Basin in Hebron, which is the site of uh, an oil field called the White Rose Oil Field. And I can't give anything else away about that either, but um, the links between her headed to this oil field from the place where she was in Iraq, essentially, because she sees it as this one long journey. Those two are linked. And she ha- she has a friend whose family, a friend from Iraq, whose family lives in northern Canada, and she believes she's headed there because the two of them have plans involving this oil field. 
I'm Alex Cox, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to go back to, I guess, how Lauren has been changed by her experience, at least in terms of how that first initially comes across to the people around, how she relates to the people back in Watertown when she first returns. Like immediately at the beginning of the book, she goes back to see Shane, her boyfriend, who she's cut off contact with for quite a long time while she's been away. Yes. She goes to see, she stops writing to Shane and doesn't want really anything to do with Shane. She feels that the two of them have this big difference now. And really what's a big class difference, he goes away to kind of an elite school and she goes to the army. And as he's writing her letters about what he's doing and she's living her life, not really telling him what she's doing there, the two don't have enough in common anymore to maintain a relationship. But as soon as she gets back, she goes to his house has sex with him and then leaves him immediately. It's it's this compulsion that she has, this like deep desire she has to see him, this need she has to see him, to be with him. And then she's not actually capable of the intimacy after that. So she's very ambivalent about that relationship. So that's changed her relationship with her boyfriend, who she was very close to, and the two of them had plans to get out of the terrible little town that they were from and really move on. And that dream has been shattered by what she went through in combat and also in her lengthy deployment. So she's really unmoored. And then she comes home, after seeing Shane, she comes home to her her family house. And her father is doing things that she hasn't seen in a long time. He's, of course, overjoyed to see her, and there's this wonderful reunion, but he's also doing things like taking care of making dinner and taking care of the bills, and his eyes look bright, and he's clearly not depressed anymore, and he's taking good care of Danny, which she hadn't seen before. And instead of this making her very happy, which it initially does, it makes her feel lost, like she no longer has a role in the family. As well as you just talked about her, you know, her coming back and and not feeling like she has that place anymore. But there are people in the town who she can relate to now and in fact can relate to, I guess, better than she could before she went away. And I'm thinking particularly of the music teacher, Troy, here. Right. Troy and, and, and to some extent her, her godfather, PJ, who are veterans, who were huge influences on her life actually before she enlisted. And they were people she looked up to and saw as having made the right decisions in some way or at least being disciplined, you know, tough, accomplished people that she looked up to. So Troy served in the first Gulf War, which is very different from the current Gulf War. In, in that it was shorter and that, you know, most of the people deployed were not seeing the kind of combat that people are seeing, soldiers who are now seeing. So Troy is somebody who, who actually trained her, her voice, and he's he's a little bit of an Asperger's-y kind of guy, and but very, very dedicated to her as a musician and, and believes that, you know, the most important thing for her to have done is, is to continue on as a musician. And she does, the, the second thing she does, you know, or the third thing she does after seeing her family is she goes to the church where she trained with Troy uh, as a vocalist, as a classical singer. And he immediately wants to go up into the choir loft and practice these songs that, you know, have her practice her songs because he immediately thinks that, you know, now she's home and she's going to go to conservatory and all these things are going to happen, and she just can't do it. She just can't sing, but she wants to be in proximity to him. She wants to be near him, and, and it's sort of a similar thing with her godfather who was in Vietnam. She respects him and, and loves him, and he helped the family tremendously when her father was depressed. He was there for the children in this way. He taught her how to drive. He, 
he did all these things for her. But now that she's been in the army, and, and again, it's a very different part of what I'm trying to show, I think, in the book is how different, how maybe these war experiences are the same, but really they're very different. Vietnam's a very different war from even the, you know, the first Gulf War, which is a very different war from the current Gulf War. And so PJ was in Vietnam and she kind of pities him. She sees him as, you know, this sort of, it's pathetic, you know, that she's done it. Like he was drafted. He had no real training. He didn't have, he wasn't part of a quote, professional army or quote, all volunteer army, which is how soldiers now are perceived as, as having a choice. And we can get into that later, whether or not that's true. But as far as Lauren understanding things when she comes back, she does, yes, relate to these other soldiers, these other veterans, just more than she would to civilians who she sees as very soft. But at the same time, her war is her war. And I think every soldier's and every veteran's experience is actually very different. Just a, a final question on the um, the substance of the book, of uh, the story, I guess. It's written in a, in a way, it goes backwards and forwards in time, sometimes it's clearer than other times at what particular time we're we're at and and the imagery is often quite dreamlike and and all of these things i guess are suggesting the um ptsd that um that lauren is gradually becoming more and more aware that she's you know she's less able to react with reality isn't it is this was this a deliberate thing Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of the structure of the book is, is set up so that the reader feels that same dislocation, um, the same kind of hypervigilance, the same sorts of things that Lauren and that other veterans who are who experience uh, trauma feel. And so, yeah, that was very, very deliberate. You know, she has intrusive thoughts. She has flashbacks. She feels dislocated and strange uh, in familiar places. Uh, she has difficulty driving now because of um, some of the things that happened when she was in Iraq. So yes, all of that was was very much a part of creating a whole aesthetic uh, and thematic sense of, of that psychological experience for the reader. This is Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Cara Hoffman, and we're talking about her book, Be Safe, I Love You. Cara, when I introduced you at the, at the top of the show, you, you had quite a quite an interesting backstory getting you to, to, to be the author you are today. And while I didn't mention this in that introduction, your your background is, is very relevant to this story as well, and I guess inspired the story. So I want to talk about why you wrote it. Well, yeah, so... My brother is a, a combat veteran of two tours of duty in Afghanistan, and my family, I guess my, you know, in a sense, my family is a military family and that all of my uncles served in various capacities in different wars, and um, the character of PJ, who's a Vietnam vet, is, is based on, is her godfather, is, is based on a very, very close family friend, somebody who essentially was my godfather, my uncle, and he, um, as I said, he served in Vietnam, but after Vietnam, he became an activist and he he was um, part of, a, he, he was a Black Panther and he was part of um, SNCC, you know, Student Nonviolent Organi- uh, Coordinating Committee, and doing lots of things having to do with civil rights. So those things actually do come from my upbringing and how I, how I understood, I guess, war and 
soldiering is something that that had a very diverse effects on, on different people. And as far as um, my brother's deployments and my, my brother's military career are concerned, he served recently, but he actually enlisted when I was a child. So many of the things that Lauren is um, concerned that Danny learned how to do were actually things that my brother taught me how to do when I was was young. You know, it was very important for him when he returned from the army that uh, that I learn how to run and that I be disciplined and that I learn how to jump off the part of the roof of the house or jump out of a moving car or things like that. That really, when you're 11 years old, you're not necessarily it's not it's not necessarily something you're thinking of doing. It's kind of cool when someone's teaching you how to do it, but it's also a little unnerving. So those things do come from reality. Also, fight. He, he he was very interested that I learned how to um, how to learn how to fight. He was living at home again, sort of between some training he had and then like deploying to somewhere else. And he spent a, a good deal of time when I came home from school, sneaking up on me and then like insisting that I try to beat him up somehow, <laughs> showing me different moves from combatives like um, Lauren does to Danny when she teaches him how to knock people down and things like that. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And so how, how useful has, has all of this training been to the, to the New York writer's life? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, say, I would say it wasn't useful to me then, and, and uh, um, it was fun. I mean, it was, it was kind of fun. But no, I, I don't think it's been very useful for my current life, which involves sitting in a chair and writing and, and drinking lots of coffee. Yeah, not really. And it, it, at the time, I mean, and, and also I did, I studied classical voice, so um, none of that stuff really came in handy either for auditions or <laughs> things like that. So how did, let's talk, I mean, in general terms, we don't need to go into, have to go into too much detail, but in, in general terms, how did his experience, how did your brother's experience change him then? What happened to him during these deployments? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I say all the time that I, I benefited. I benefited hugely from the things that he learned in, in the Army. And I think it made him a very disciplined person. I think it made him um, a responsible person in, in certain ways. And, you know, that it's hard for me to say because I was a child. So my memory of him, you know, I was a child when he first enlisted. And so my memory of him before that is more of a, 
you know, I, 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 I can't say that I understood his character um, that well. But afterwards, I think he was um, he was changed for the better in, in, in many ways as far as his own life. You know, and of course, it's one of those things. I mean, you get the military allows you to go to different places. I mean, he was a paratrooper. He was, was sort of like an elite unit of paratroopers, and he had he learned all kinds of interesting things and skills. And and then he, you know he came home and was later in the National Guard, and he went to college on the GI Bill. All kinds of things that the Army for working class people, you know, the Army does very well, right? Provides you an education and, and that kind of thing. And then he went to Afghanistan and he was with the special forces once and, and then another time he was uh, in a training mission for the Afghan National Army. And those those deployments were difficult. And I think they were difficult for him and they were difficult for my whole family and they were difficult for his, his immediate family, you know, his wife and his children. And, you know, that's, I don't know that I want to talk too much about it, but I, I will say that 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 was um, it was a, it's a difficult time for everybody and certainly you don't want to think about someone you love and someone who is an enormous enormous presence in your life being in a position to either kill people or be killed it's not a it's not a great thought when you wake up every morning it doesn't doesn't feel good and when they come home you want to make sure that you want to make sure that things are going okay for them and sometimes it's it's very it's very difficult to understand that or or know how to make that happen. So, to be safe, I love you. Is about it's about Lauren, its main protagonist, and and her journey. But in a wider sense, it is about the the effect that her experience has on her wider family and and the people around her. Um, I want to talk about outside of your own family experience. If you did any other research, did you talk to other military families about their experience? Oh yeah, absolutely. I did. I I talked to many many women veterans um, and and many people from military families. And you know that's. I feel yeah. My my immediate experience I feel is represented in the book more minimally than than actually my experience researching it. In the sense that like I, there's an emotional core to the book that's very close to my heart. That definitely comes from you know, my brother, my family, and my, my godfather, and all that. But but the other events in the book really come from doing lots and lots of research and talking to lots and lots of women who do have really different experiences than than men do in the in the military. So this is where I wanted to come on to next, really, because yes, Lauren, the protagonist, is a woman. There's a lot of literature about war, reams and reams of books about a soldier's experience at war, but very, very little about the experience of women soldiers at war. So let's talk about why you wanted to why you wanted to represent that. Well, the main reason is because it was time for that to happen. Women have been serving in the military in some capacity, you know, in this country for hundreds of years. And and now women are, are you know, 95% of all jobs, all military jobs are open to them. So, you know, the journalist in me is saying, well, you know, this is something that needs to be covered. This is timely. This is going on. I want to write things that represent reality, the reality of our culture and the reality of our time. So that, you know, that the main reason is simply because now is time. You know, and the other reason is because when we think about, people say very glibly, oh, that's because women weren't allowed to serve before. And the reality behind that is women weren't allowed to serve because of misogyny, because of sexism. And so, 
that's of course always um a part of i think how how anyone who's intellectually inclined needs to needs to be looking it's not simply like oh women couldn't surf before but why couldn't women surf before what were the circumstances that created that um because obviously you know women couldn't be doctors before women couldn't be lawyers women couldn't work outside the home women couldn't vote so you can say all these things very glibly like oh well now now is the time of course now is the time when women can do that but we need to look at the past and we need to look at why and we need to look at the present and we need to really uh, incisively and critically see how things are now and make sure that we're working towards an understanding that, that gets us closer to equality. And and that, of course, is, is a huge part of my writing, both in So Much Pretty and in this book and in the book that I'm writing next, is looking at how misogyny is actually kind of a public health crisis, how it's created all kinds of things that are extremely negative for, for the entire population, for men and for women. And you know, sort of globally. And, uh, and I think that's the kind of thing that's sort of what I've been lecturing about too. I'm going to come back to that point in a moment. I want to talk more about women in the military and their, and their experience. But I just said that, you know, there's not that, obviously at the moment, historically there's not been a lot of books about women's experience fighting in war. So what are the books, what are the books about war influenced the writing of this book? Well, the main book is Louis Ferdinand Céline's Journey to the End of the Night, which is, I think, probably the best, best war novel ever written. And I think only 30 pages of it are actually, actually have to do with combat. So the first 30 pages of that book are, are amazing about World War One, And the rest of the book, it's about 500, 600 pages long. The rest of the book is about a soldier's experience being home. And it's really, it's a very funny book. It's very dark. It's beautifully written. It's written in a in a style that is totally innovative for its time and that completely affected the way the rest of world literature actually evolved. So that book, I in the epigraph of Be Safe, I Love You, is, is a paragraph from Journey to the End of the Night. I really can't say enough about Celine's influence on me as, as a, a writer and a thinker. I think that is the foundation of it. And I, I also feel like his work is not gendered in the same sense that a lot of a lot of books that people look to when they are writing about war. He is writing about a man, but the experience of that man is is very different and very intellectual and, and much more universal. Um, so that book, Catch-22, is a book that you know I've loved since I was young. And you know Helen Benedict has written some amazing amazing works about women in the military. The main one, of course, is The Lonely Soldier, which is a work of nonfiction that is amazing. It, it broke the story on military sexual assault. And my book does not deal with military sexual assault, but her descriptions of this ominous reality of how women live day to day uh, in their deployments is it's unparalleled. It's fantastic. And then she wrote another book called Sand Queen, which is a novel, which is about um, a, a young woman soldier who is sexually assaulted. And it's Helen's work is groundbreaking. Helen's work, she is the first one to do these things. And so certainly she she is an example to all of us who would be writing about war if, if we're actually encompassing the um, the whole experience of human beings. I think she's she's really fantastic. I'm Natalie Haynes, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. You mentioned wanting to 
to highlight the experiences of women in in war, women soldiers, and women in the military have been held back by you know a, a system of misogyny and a sort of patriarchal structure over the years. One of the, I guess we could say that one of the key tools of that structure is is war itself. Is you know the very idea of there being a military that's off having adventures in other in other countries. I want to talk about what are women doing in the military. I think it's it's still quite. It's a secretive world, the military, obviously, and I think there's not been that long that there has been a representation of women in the military. And during that time that it has, there's been, you know, two you know, quite serious long wars going on. What are women doing? What are they? Do- what are the women soldiers doing? Women are doing the same jobs as men in the military, and I think that's what's really disturbing <laughs> is that it seems very few people are aware of that. So um, I know, and I, I was actually reading about um, the English military and military in the UK, and women, I guess, I mean, that's that's the big debate right now, right, is combat, is women serving in combat, because they're not allowed to engage, what I think it's called, engage the enemy or something like that. They can't be in those kinds of situations, and that's the current debate. But in the United States, it's really, I think, 95% of all jobs are open to women and maybe more. And so... Yeah, they're working as mechanics and they're working in, you know, on like forward operating bases doing transport and things like that. And they're also helicopter pilots and they're also on convoys and they're doing all kinds of things that everyone's doing. The thing that's, I think, difficult for people to realize is that when you're there across a certain line, you're there. You can call, you can call these people combat support, but they're actually in combat alongside everyone else. So that's been kind of a frustrating, uh, a frustrating thing, especially in talking to women who've served. Um, and you know, I, I try to get this across as accurately as possible in the novel that um, being called combat support when really you're right there alongside everybody. It's extremely frustrating. It's condescending. It's it breaks your confidence. And so yeah, so women are doing what men are doing in the army. <laughs> you alluded to this in in the first. Part, but I want to I want to go back to I guess how well really I want to talk about the you know before and after both men and women are joining the military and going off and and fighting war. So sort of what is the situation in the states at the moment with recruiting people? How does that work? How does it actually work? How does military recruiting work? Well, I mean, who are they? Who is the you know who is the target of the military recruiters? Ah, who's the target? Yeah, so um, poor people. <laughs> Very say it very clearly. Um, military recruiting is targeted at, at people who are, don't have much, and in this country, globally, we have this problem. But you know, in the United States right now, there's an enormous wealth stratification, and so the people who are targeted are people who are from a poorer background, who maybe don't have college-educated parents, who themselves are are not in a position where they'll be going on to college. And I, I would say that recruiting also does, There, are, people are also recruited for ideological reasons. After 9-11, you had many, many people joining up who were middle class or even some people who were upper middle class who were joining the army for maybe ideological reasons. And all, often you have people who are like legacy military family people, people who want to be officers who go to Citadel or something like that, and that's their career. But enlisted folks, people like Lauren, people who make up uh, really the rank and file, are people who are poor. And it's not talked about very much, uh, although it should be, and quite a lot of 
of um, literature has come out recently, memoirs and and um, and stories and things like that, written by by people who have been officers. And you know, I find it very interesting because it doesn't really ref- does not reflect the reality of the of the of the American military. And what then happens? generally to combat veterans once their tour is finished, once their their time in the military is finished. So Friday they're in Iraq carrying out their last day of operations and and then the next day they've left the army and and are coming back to America. What happens? What sort of support is there for them at the moment? Well, it's it's an interesting question. I think it really also depends. It does depend on the class of the soldier in the social class, the economic class, because I think there's people who come home and they have tons of support and things work out okay. And I think the more people are reliant on um, the government or public assistance in some way, the worse things are. So there's already a dislocation. There's already a sense that you're coming home to a job that maybe doesn't have as much meaning. If you were working at a grocery store or a service industry job or in a call bank or wherever before you went over and then you go over and you're doing exciting things. Even if the day-to-day might be boring in many ways, you're training, you're doing things, there's a heightened sense of your importance. When you come home to those jobs, those lower-level jobs, uh, it's very frustrating and there's like a sense of hollowness. And um, I've talked to many, many people who've described that. So um, so that's part of what's going on. I think um, the news has been full of stories about how um, the VA, the Veterans Administration hospitals in the United States have failed, uh, have failed soldiers. And I think that that a lot is, is um, there's a lot of pressure now for there to be better care, especially better psychological care in the wake of, of um, certain violent violent things that have happened, uh, been carried out by veterans. So this is where I, w- I was going to go next, really, and, and how do you think it can be done better? And I guess, again, both the, the getting people to join the army in the first place and then the sort of pastoral care for the, for the, for the veterans after they've, after they've left the army, what can they do better? You know, I've been asked that question before, and I really don't have an answer for it. I mean, it's, you know, in in my opinion, the things need to change economically in this country. I mean, you can't you can't really have things get better for people, um, for poor people, who one of their only options to to get out of a bad situation or to make money is to is to join the army. People who come from in in, in many cases because poverty is a traumatizing experience, right? So if you come from sort of a traumatized background in a sense, right? You maybe there's some scarcity of things that you need in your life and you go into a situation that's even more traumatic, you're not going to come back feeling all that great, right? You're more likely to have PTSD. You're more likely to suffer from PTSD if there's something else going on in your background, if something has happened in your background that's traumatizing. And certainly poverty, hunger, lack of education. There's, of course, all kinds of stuff going on in this country with the meth trade, with various different drug trades in in actually rural places um, where many of the ranks of the military come from that have already been traumatizing. And so I don't think we can talk about how to have things work out better for people returning until we talk about how to make them better before they go. Okay, just one final question then. You mentioned that you talk to a lot of military families and and women soldiers, ex-women soldiers. So what is what's the reaction to the book been like from the people that it's, you know, the people that you've written it for? It's been great. It's been really great and 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 really heartening actually. Um yeah, I 
was talking, I was like this last month I was talking to this woman, this um vet who was actually about to deploy. It was it was sort of early on when the book was released, she was about to deploy and she had just finished reading the book and she was saying, I'm so proud of you and I'm so happy about this and she's like, you know, I got all these girls here and you know, all all, all these girls here and we're waiting for a transport and everybody's downloading your book onto the Kindle <laughs> like waiting to read it as so they're like going out and um and that made me feel great. That made me feel great. It really moved me. So um, that's the kind of response that I've been getting, which is, you know, thank you for for saying this and, that, you know, that it's about time. And, and I, I've been overwhelmed, actually, with positive reaction in, in general for the book. I was kind of concerned about it because it is a heavy book and, and tricky and it's about a heavy subject. And so, yeah, I've been very happy with the response. That's brilliant. So I've been talking to Cara Hoffman and we've been talking about her book, Be Safe, I Love You. Cara, thank you very much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.